Hey, I realize we have some people that are kind of down today. It's, it's not been a great weekend, especially if you're from Virginia. And uh, some of you are following the March Madness deal, and a number 16 seed knocked off the number one seed, and it's a bad day. But not if you're from Maryland. That is exactly right. This morning, we're going to talk about some things that I think will really uh, help us all because there are times when things just don't go our way. If you'll take out your bulletin notes, do you wonder if God is still in charge when things don't go the way you had planned? Is He still in charge when everything around you is falling apart? Is He still in charge and is He sovereign? when it didn't go down the way you thought it would. You know, some of us, you know, a bad day is a relative thing. Take a look at these slides here. It's a bad day. This guy's car goes off, you know, into the water, so they're going to dredge it up out of there, and the crane's got it almost up there, and then all of a sudden, the crane goes into the water with the car. Well, it falls in, and so they get a bigger crane, And they're going to take the car up and the other crane. And it looks like they got the car rescued almost one more time. But then something happens. The other crane falls in and the big crane goes into the water. Now, friends, that is a bad day. That is not as it was planned. In fact, quite frankly, you're glad you're not the guy who's in charge of that little rescue operation. It kind of puts our stuff into perspective. So I'm going to answer this question, and we're going to look at it six different times with this phrase, God is still in charge when? That's where we're headed this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bring the scriptures to clarity to our minds and our hearts, that it wouldn't just go into our head, but it would change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God is still in charge. We're in Acts 12. God is still in charge when someone dies for their faith. Look at verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So persecution of the church is a cyclical thing. We see that happening. And James' martyrdom for, the, for his faith is he's the third one, right? John the Baptist is first, then Stephen. Uh, James is the third to die for his faith. And it's by the hands of this guy named Herod. Now, when you're studying the Gospels or the book of Acts, you've got to know which Herod we're talking about. This is Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the crazy king who decided to kill the babies in Jerusalem at, at Jesus' birth. In fact, he was so nuts, he had actually not killed some of his own sons because he didn't want them to come to the throne. And so... Uh, Herod Agrippa grew up in that kind of environment, so his mom, Bernice, gets him out of Dodge. And by the way, you know, the Herods are Jews, right? They're, they're, he's from the descendants of Esau, so she moves him to Rome to protect him from his crazy grandpa. Now, you think you got a dysfunctional family. Just thank God you are not part of the Herod clan, because you not, might, might not have a lineage today. Now, The thing is, we look at this, and we know that Satan will do anything to thwart the the gospel. And you'll see this pattern in the book of Acts where it goes up and down like a roller coaster. And he kills James. Now, James is the brother of John, the sons of thunder, right? The sons of Zebedee. 
He's a part of the original big three. It's Peter, James, and John. That's the original big three. It was not LeBron, Wade, and Bosch. I'm telling you, it was these three guys are the original big three. I know it's a throwback to basketball. I just can't help myself. Now, don't confuse this James with the James who's the half-brother of Jesus who writes the book of James, and we're going to talk about him later. The point is that most of us are never going to be martyred for our faith, but every one of us has someone who has died, right? Someone who's close to us. In fact, a Christian has a much different perspective on death. Let me read you a couple of scriptures that might be encouraging to you. Write them down. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. The Lord says, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, he is the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five to 26. And so we got to see death differently. Death for the Christian is a graduation ceremony, not a courtroom sentence. And so for many of us, we know that we have to trust God for someone who isn't doing well, someone that may be dying that we love very much. God is still in charge when, number two, Unfair punishment and persecution comes our way, verses 3 and 4. Look at it. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Agrippa decides he's going to take on the church again. And it's, he saw that, that knocking off James pleased the people so he's going to kill another apostle, but he has to do it in a way that's kind of uh, underhanded. He has to do it during the unleavened bread, um, during that festival. So he puts him in jail with the purpose that he's going to be killed after that because there could be no executions during this time. Now, <clears throat> Peter's been in jail before, right? This is his third time going to jail. So for him, this is kind of old hat. And something has happened in the church. Remember, the last person to die was Stephen. And if you do the chronology, that's about 11 years previous. And so there's been 11 years of kind of relative calm and, uh, and the church is growing, etc. But we know every time the church goes under persecution, it inversely grows. You would think it would just, you know, implode on itself, but it doesn't. So Peter's arrest is for the purpose that he's, he's going to die, and he's, in, he's in prison. Probably, if you've been to Jerusalem, that Tower of Antonio, named after Mark Anthony, is probably where he's housed. Now, what does the Bible say about persecution and suffering? Well, first of all, life isn't fair. That's one of the great lessons we teach our children growing up. I'm sorry, honey, you didn't make the travel soccer team, but I'm so much better than all... Life isn't fair. We know that James 1 says uh, that we should be encouraged and we should count all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. We know that in John 16, in this world you will have troubles. But some of us don't want to admit the fact that maybe there's also persecution as part of the Christian life. Matthew 5, write this one down, Matthew 5, 10 through 12 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute 
you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. God is still in charge during our suffering, during our trials, when we respond to persecution. Some of you have been in a secular biology class back in your college days, or maybe you're experiencing that now, and maybe you're a little challenged about standing up for your faith in view of kind of the atheistic, humanistic uh, theories that are taught in school. Some people have lost jobs because they decide, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to cook the books. I I can't do that. I can't, with integrity, do this for you. Now, the the deal is, sometimes when we're persecuted, we don't know how it's going to end. Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Remember, Daniel and the three guys are are, are thrown in the, into the fire, and, and they said, because they wouldn't bow down to that golden idol of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, even if our God does not spare us, we will not bow down. Number three, God is still in charge when our prayers seem to go unanswered. Verse five, with, by a show of hands, has anybody ever prayed for something and you're wondering, man, this has taken a long time. Anybody besides me praying for something? I think everybody in this room, you're praying for something and you're wondering if it's ever going to happen. Now, Peter, by looking at the text, we know is in, has been in jail for seven nights and uh, the church is praying in earnest. They don't seem to see, have any answer. They've been gathered together praying for him, but they believe that God will answer their prayer. Paul prayed three times for this thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8, uh, for this thorn to be removed, and God didn't answer that prayer. It might have been eyesight, might have been migraine headaches, we don't know. So how do we handle what we think is an unanswered prayer? God says yes, those are the ones we like, especially if it aligns with what we want, right? Nobody li- everybody loves those kind of answered prayers. Sometimes God says no. And when he says no, we're kind of disappointed, but oftentimes we look backwards and say, oh, I'm sure glad he didn't answer that one because it wouldn't have ended well. But the big answer for some of us that we don't really like, we like a yes or a no, it's that in-between time where God says, not yet. You got to wait. You have an aging parent who's on life support and they're suffering, and yet... God hasn't seen fit yet to take them home to be with the Lord. Or maybe you're in that stage before that where they're just suffering and there's no cure. Or maybe you're that parent who lost a baby. I am. The the two hardest funerals I've ever done, and I've, I've done like 180 weddings and like 15 funerals. Of the 15 funerals, half of them are are children, and the other half are people who, hey, it's time to go see Jesus. But the two hardest I've ever done were for the same family, two babies born, both hydrocephalic. One lived three days, one did four days within three years of each other. That's a tough sell. That's hard on anybody. And yet, do we believe that God is in charge even in our pain, in our loss, or maybe you are praying for a child of yours 
whose marriage just isn't going well. I know that one. It's heart-wrenching because you can't fix it for them. Some of you knew that our son's separated right now. His wife left him. I can't fix it. And I'm praying for a miracle. But God will have to do what he's going to do in his time. And I trust him. In fact, if we're honest, most of our prayers, we have to trust God in spite of what we're seeing, not because of how he's answering. Write that down. We trust God oftentimes in spite of, not because of, what we're seeing. Number four, God is still in charge when our situation seems impossible. God is still in charge when our situation seems impossible. Look at verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Sentries before the door were guarding the prison. We see the restraints. We see the restraints. Uh, he, he's chained to these guys. By the way, Paul was chained to soldiers later in his life. We've seen that. And uh, think about it. Uh, Peter's kind of a, a chatty Cathy, so it's a bummer for these soldiers because he's chained up with two of them, and he never stops his yapper. Talk, talk, talk about Jesus. And the guys are outside, are giggling to themselves, like, I wonder how long these two are going to last, but they're outside the door. And then it's nighttime. It's interminable because Peter, sleeping like a baby, is probably just snoring away, and he's going to be executed the next day. How can he sleep like that? It's because if you remember, and this is a passage we don't often connect to Acts 12, you have to go all the way back to John 21, verses 18 and 19, in the Peter, do you love me scene three times. And at the very end of that, he says, when you grow old, others will have to care for you. Well, Peter still considered himself a young man, so he knows I'm not dying tomorrow because I'm going to grow old and I'm not old. Now, maybe he was in denial. No, he, he was, he was, it wasn't his time. And there were 16 soldiers involved, four at a time, different shifts, two chained to them, two outside the door. And it says, circle this in your Bible, it says, that very night, at the end of seven days being in prison, that very night, God chose to move. You can take this from the bank. God is never late, but he is seldom early, Right? In our impossible situation, God is never going to be late, but he is seldom early. It comes down to last minute, to the wire, and then God stepped in. Think about all the times God steps in at the last minute, and we think that he's late. Lazarus dies. Mary and Martha are so upset. It's four days later. He shows up at the tomb. We know he's dead because they open the tomb. He puts his head in. Whoo! It is bad. The King James says, yea, thus verily, he stinketh. Well, maybe it didn't exactly say that. But God, in his timing, is glorified as he's raised from the dead. How about Joseph, thrown into pits, thrown into jails? I mean, God, what are you doing? Accused falsely. But such a time as this, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That very night. 
Well, there's a rescue now. We've seen the restraints. In verse 7 and 8, we see a rescue. I could read it for you, or we could have a little fun this morning. We're going to transport you back in time to 1984. A, a, a Christian artist by the name of Amy Grant wrote a song called Angels. Marie Branchwinick, I am playing this little one-minute clip just for you. She sings it at the Grammys. Let the lights go down. Let's see if she's accurate to the text. Let's check it out. skin coat. We got Miami Vice playing the piano there. That was awesome. 80s big hair. I, that, I enjoyed that. And so the angel has to wake up Peter, he's so silent, with an angelic spotlight. Now, have you ever been woken up from a, from a deep sleep and you were kind of startled? Uh, I remember the last time I was woken up by a spotlight. It was the spotlight of the Eden Prairie Police Department. We're sound asleep in our house and they had been pounding on our door. We weren't waking up. And so they took, you know, a spotlight and blared it through our window. And I go, what's that bright light? I'm ready to see you, Jesus. You know, and I'm waking up. I mean, I'm ready. I'm expecting like a Black Hawk helicopter to lower itself through the window. Take cover, Cheryl. Run. I go to the door and the police are there. And there are like four of them. I'm going, what's going on? They, and then I looked around and there are two rolls of toilet paper covering every tree on our property. And they said, sir, there's been some vandalism to your house. As you can see, these young gentlemen here say they know you. And I look to my left, and it's our junior high intern <laughs> with like six junior high guys. And they thought it would be fun to toilet paper the family pastor's house because they had nothing better to do on a Friday night. And so they said, would you like to press charges? It was before I had a goatee, but I did this. Hmm. And these kids are like this. I go, nah, nah, you don't have to press charges. But I would like them to clean it up tonight. And I don't know how long it took for them to clean it up, but it was clean by morning. We went back to bed. So I got, I've had that spotlight experience. And so Peter had that spotlight experience, except it's from an angel 34, 34 books of the Bible mention angels 300 times in Scripture. This is that messenger from God, and it takes an angelic you know, uh, elbow to the ribs to wake him up, and there's this jailbreak that gets him out of jail. But notice, angel doesn't pamper him, says, get up, get dressed, get your clothes on, doesn't make it a heavenly omelet, doesn't give him clean clothes. 
But the miracle is what happens. The chains fall off. But the bigger miracle, once again, soldiers who are highly trained, who are chained to them, do nothing. Now, what's going on? Are they sleeping? Are they in a daze? Are they in a fog? Is it freeze motion? Is it the matrix? I'm telling you, that's the miracle because they get past those two and then the ones outside and they just keep walking. Look at the reality in verses 9 to 11. They went out and followed him. And he says, Peter in his mind says, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. But then they keep passing guards, and in fact, gates start opening. If you've ever been to the Salvation Army camp, you're trying to get out, and like, whoa, and the gate opens and closes. You know, you've been in those fancy neighborhoods where the gate opens or closes. That's what happens. And then all of a sudden, he finds himself on the street. He goes, hey, and the angel's gone. He's left standing outside a prison. Now, when you read passages like that, the question that gets asked is, are there guardian angels today? Are there people that have experienced an angel jailbreak like that? Well, I don't know about that, but here's where they get those ideas for supporting this. I'm not going to take a position either way, but I do believe that angels do uh, intervene in the lives of people. Whether you have an actual guardian angel, this is where people take it from if they say that. Psalm 91.11, God will command his angels concern you to guard you in all your ways Hebrews 1.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Matthew 18.10, this is the big one where they, people think children have guardian angels. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven there are angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What I do know is what Peter does in response to this miracle. Look at verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people that they were expecting. The Lord rescued him. He had nothing to do with his rescue, just like we have nothing to do with our salvation. We are rescued from the grips of sin. God does it. Now, what if, we've mentioned this, you know, what if God doesn't answer the way we expect? We've looked at the Daniel passage, but here's what I got to tell you. God is still in charge no matter what happens, whether someone dies for a faith, whether there's unfair punishment, whether our prayers seem to go answered, where our situation seems impossible. Now, I've got one of those kind of impossible situations. I'm going to tell you just a brief thing so you can just pray about it. See, this This is called bedrock, and we'll put it up on the screen so you can see it. This is what's supposed to be underneath my house and that you should, your house should be built on this, right? Apparently, I bought a house that I'm supposed to be moving into soon that has some problems, all right? And so I took Dave Huners, who's a structural engineer, and we've got all these opinions, and they're working on it. And when I say this, some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm going, ooh. 17 steel piers are going in around our foundation to just firm things up. So Dave, he has such a nice dry sense of humor, thought he would give me a biblical lesson about that. And it's Luke 648. There's our Monopoly house. It's on the foundation. This came out of our ground. And I had to remind myself, what does that say? Luke 648, he's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well-built. Well, let me tell you, friends, I'm going to have a well-built house with lots of steel. 
If there's earthquakes, come to our house because it's not going anywhere, all right? God is our foundation even when we don't understand what's going on. Number five, God is still in charge when we pray but don't actually believe that he's going to answer. Look at verses 12 through 17, the realization. When he realized this, this is Peter, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name, other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and were praying. And when they knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Sometimes we pray for things, but maybe we don't really believe that God's going to answer. This, the, the, the Christians have been praying for Peter, for him to be released. He goes to the house. And by the way, this house is probably where they met at Pentecost in Acts 1.13. And it's the house of John Mark's mom, Mary. Not Mary, his mother, but John Mark. And who is this, this Mark guy, John Mark? We, he goes with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Remember that? But John Mark has a problem. What does he do at the end of the journey? He does what? He bails. He bails on him. This ends up causing problems between Paul and Barnabas, but the bottom line is, ultimately, uh, Mark goes to Cyprus with Barnabas, and he is the author of the gospel of Mark, right, and the cousin of Barnabas. So just a sidebar. It has nothing to do with this exact point. When you have a mess up, when you have a failure, God can still use you. Here's a, a young kid. He, got, he was in over his head. It didn't work out with him and Paul but eventually God used him in a powerful way. That's where he goes to his mom. That's where Peter goes. Now, Rhoda is this young servant girl, and she recognizes Peter's voice. She's not been a part of the prayer, but she's probably been on the periphery of that. And the bottom line, in her excitement, she goes and leaves him. I mean, literally leaves him hanging. Ever done this? And they leave you hanging. And so Peter's like, what? And he's like knocking, and she's gone. Hey, Peter is here. And he's left out in the cold. Now, what's the reaction? I won't read the verses, but in verses 15 through 17, they essentially say they're praying for a release. And the rose going, excuse me, excuse me. And they hear this knocking. Hey, Peter's here. He's out of jail. Yeah, whatever. We're going to keep praying. Uh, and they said, girl, you're out of your mind. You are nuts. What are you saying? You're saying things. And then they modified their response so that you're just seeing an angel because uh, someone has said that, uh, in Jewish superstition, each person had his own guardian angel who could assume that person's form. But Peter just keeps knocking, going, really? Really? After seven days. I just, I just want a little, you know, a little breakfast here. So they finally check it out, and it says they were what? They were dumbfounded, literally, to stand outside yourself in the Greek. And their, their prayers have been answered. They are so excited. But Peter says, tone it down, because I'm sure there's this big... Ah! And Peter's going, shh, the universal sign for it, like, bring it in, shh, you know. He gives him the shush sign, and he says, hey, I'm going to tell you this story. Now, why did he tell him to be quiet? Because he knows that they're going to be looking for him. In fact, the fact that Rhoda answered the door, just a sidebar, that's a lot of courage for a young servant. Go, she knows that these are people that are not, they're being going to be tracked down, and she takes the courage to even open the door. And so he shushes them, and, but he finishes the story, and he says, go tell James and the rest of the family what's going on. So none of Jesus' family is in this room. James is his half-brother, and we got to remember the transformation that happens with Jesus' uh, brothers and sisters. Remember, James is not a fan. 
when Jesus is alive. In fact, in the Gospels, that his brothers did not believe him. Write this down, John 7, 5. And they actually thought at one time that he was cuckoo, cuckoo, right? Mar uh, Mark 3, 21. But after the resurrection, James is transformed. And in fact, after Peter, uh, we know Peter goes into exile, he becomes kind of the leader of the Jerusalem church. That's the James. Now think about how it must have been to be a brother, a half-brother, quote-unquote, to Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, some of you are saying, we've got sibling rivalry. You've got nothing like what Mary and Joseph deal with. You've got the Son of God. He is the perfect child, the per literally perfect. How many times? Jesus, I'm so sorry for losing my temper with you. I should have known you were about your father's business, you know, that kind of thing. But think if you were the younger brother. That's got to be tough because you're never right. He's always right, et cetera, et cetera. So you can imagine there might have been a little tension growing up. Now, we say that tongue-in-cheek, but this ends actually Peter's kind of visible ministry. He goes underground for five years. We don't see him again into the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And so from chapter 13 on, where Pastor Scott will pick it up next week, moving to the end of the book, the next uh, 16 chapters, it's all about who? Who takes center stage in the book of Acts? Paul, yeah. So the whole rest of the book is about Paul and his ministry. Lastly, God is still in charge when evil men seem to prosper, verses 18 to 24. God is in charge even when wicked people seem to prosper. Now, a side message, someday, sometime, do a quiet time in Psalm 73, because that's the quintessential psalm when you're dealing with someone who says, they're evil, they're crazy, why are they getting away with us? Do the, do the wicked really prosper? They don't, but read David's response to that in Psalm 73. So he's in charge, there's a disturbance. Now, this is interesting, this is an understatement, this is so funny, verses 18 and 19. Now, when the day came... And Luke says, he's a medical doctor trying to be all prim and proper. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Like, oh, we lost him. How could we have lost him? This can't happen. We lost Jesus. Now we lost Peter. And after Herod had searched for himself and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. That's, this is funny. The bottom line is Herod has an anger issue. He kills them off. But that's according to Justinian Code that said if you lost a prisoner, whatever punishment was coming them, you had to receive it. But he, he takes off. He's had enough of this headache with Peter and all that. And he takes off to this coastal city because his grandfather had built a beach house down there. And he's going, I'm getting away. I need a mental break. I need a little vacation here. This craziness with these crazy Jesus freaks, I got to get out of here, right? So he thinks he's going on a vacation, but there's a little discord in verse 20, and there's, there's an uprising with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and he's trying to vacation, and they want more money, and there's trade route tariffs to be had, and it's just a big problem. So he's going to settle this once for all. So uh, this discord turns into a little delusion on his part, verses 21 to 24. So he makes this speech. It says he put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throat. He delivered this great speech to them. And the people start shouting, the voice of God and not a man. And they start chanting this. And he starts believing the press reports of this. And God doesn't like it. 
God doesn't like it. Look at what happens, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus, a Jewish historian, secular historian, tells us that he had some intestinal issue, and five days later he dies. God will not share the platform with anyone. We dare not usurp his rightful place on the throne. And in contrast to the angel that spares Peter, this angel actually takes Herod's life. What's the result? As we end the chapter, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. You see, persecution, death, unanswered prayer, uh, no matter what we do, the gospel keeps marching forward. And as we think about this this morning, I'm sure there are times where we have doubted what God was going to be doing, right? There have been times where it just doesn't seem to make sense. So if you bow your heads and close your eyes in a little silent meditation here, let's just remind ourselves again that God is in charge. Would you, you close your eyes? Heavenly Father, we realize that in our heads we believe that you are sovereign, that, that you are still in charge. But Lord, when someone dies, sometimes our faith is, is rocked. Or when we're persecuted or we're suffering or we encouraged, we're encountering trials that we think are unfair, we wonder. Lord, when prayers go unanswered, when our situation seems impossible, when we pray but we're only half-hearted about it, or even when evil seems to flourish, God, I'm trusting you again and acknowledging again that you're still in charge. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, you may have that impossible situation. You may have that unanswered prayer. You may be that person who's wondering about God's sovereignty in your life. I want to encourage you today. If you're in that place, would you just look up at me? It's okay. We've all been there. Anybody? Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Lord, I pray today that you would reveal yourself to us in a way that reminds us again that you are still in charge. We love you, Lord, and we lift your name up this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. That is the God that we serve. That is the army that stands behind us. That is the God that walks you through no matter what you're experiencing. God is still in charge. Amen? Amen. Have a great day. We'll see you later.